everybody and welcome to yet another session where we're going to be talking about force majeure today. It seems like um, this is something that we continue to talk about on a far more regular basis than I ever thought possible, but um, here we are again. And this morning I am joined by Fiona Teague and John Smart, who are fellow partners of mine here at Shoesmiths. My name is Michelle Craven Faulkner and I am a partner in our commercial team and also lead for the rail team here at Shoesmiths. Um, I'll pass you around the table to introduce you to others. Hi, my name's Fiona Teague. I'm a partner in the commercial team and I'm an expert in outsourcing logistics and all things supply chain. Uh, my name's John Smart. I'm one of the litigation partners here at Shoesmiths, looking at things arising from the supply chain and also the mobility lead. So here we all are again. It does seem to be a regular occurrence, this, doesn't it? I mean, we've we've all spoken about force majeure before, predominantly about COVID and Ukraine and supply chain issues. So why are we back here again today? Well, force majeure still has remained in the limelight, frankly. So life has moved on, um, but more issues keep arising and force majeure um, is, it remains relevant as we head into an economic crisis. Um, the war in Ukraine continues with supply chain issues continuing and looking at an autumn of discontent with potential blackouts and strikes, of course, not least in the um, postal and rail areas with more to follow. So what's not to talk about? <laughs> and I think it's that, that point around blackouts in particular that I think offers something really new, because I think we've looked at the kind of the cumulative effects of COVID, of, of yeah. the supply chain issues, of recessions previously. But I think looking at the prospect of electricity, rolling blackouts, etc., there's almost an expectation that this definitely will produce issues for force majeure, not least because actually that they've been seen in the past in provinces of China, which you've seen kind of rolling blackouts because there's just been a shortage of energy and you've seen those force majeure disputes arising in other jurisdictions. So it's a useful barometer to, to see that actually this really has the potential of impacting supply chains here in the UK as well. Absolutely. And I think the, the potential for the blackouts goes much further than supply chains as well. I mean, it, it's, it's going to affect everybody on, on every level. So I, I think there would be very few contracts that aren't going to be impacted by, by the potential of blackouts. I mean, blackouts and strikes, it does feel like we're going back to the 1970s <laughs> a little bit, doesn't it? Obviously not that I can remember. No, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> so, so that's why we're here today. It's, it's the continuing impact of COVID, which is still impacting people. And the news every day is telling us that there are more and more people who are being impacted by COVID. Obviously, you know, who knows whether monkeypox is going to continue. There's been some other historic illnesses that seem to be coming out again. And I think that there's a risk that flu is going to impact us quite badly this year as well. Um, Ukraine, as you say, John, continues to impact us, um, as done the supply chain. And, you know, the UK economy doesn't necessarily help things at the moment when we look at pricing issues. So... Which one to start with? Should we start with the blackouts? Because that's probably the most interesting one as it's the one that we've not necessarily spoken about before. Yeah. So in the event that we have a blackout, is that going to be a force majeure? What do you think, Fee? 
Uh, well, I think it's likely we'll be arguing um, either that it is or it isn't, depending on which side of the fence we're sitting. I mean, that's for sure. I mean, I think it's worth framing the conversation by saying we'll be looking likely at existing contracts where obligations are already uh, in place and the contract already up and running. And we, as you know, are all negotiating contracts at the moment um, that are new arrangements, mm -hmm. um, but parties are aware of the context in which we're all operating. And so how is that going to play out in the contract that actually gets signed? Um, so that's my starter for 10. I think that's right. And it's inevitably going to have a little bit of crystal ball gazing in mm -hmm. terms of actually what is the extent of these rolling blackouts likely to be? And I think the government at the moment is envisaging perhaps kind of electricity going off between kind of 4 and 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. So it's not a large scale, long term outright blackouts. What we're talking about is short term rolling blackouts. So if you kind of look at it from a force majeure perspective, it, it's going to depend on what the contract says. Does it say you, things must have prevented you from completing the contract? Or, or merely hindered, because I think if you're saying hindered, actually that kind of short scale rolling blackout is more likely to offer some sort of remedy than if mm -hmm. it's actually prevented, because it goes back to kind of discussions we've all had in the past, which may be you need to be working outside of those hours. It might be require businesses to start operation earlier in the morning or run later at night. Or have generator backups, etc. And it also depends on how your performance is measured. Is it a cumulative performance or is time of the essence, etc., for uh, delivery or production? So all those things mm. will be relevant. And from that mitigation point of view, uh, point of view, um, John, wearing your litigator's hat, how much mitigation do you think that a company would have to put in place? So, if you just mentioned the idea of getting a generator or potentially sourcing alternative, you know, other alternative um, sources of of electricity. So, whether that's putting solar panels on or whether that's getting, to, you know, some kind of wee wind turbine or something on the roof. I mean, what is the extent of the mitigation that would be required? Yeah, and and I think that goes back to kind of how the clause is constructed. Mm -hmm. If it's using that higher bar of prevented, I think there's going to be a very good argument. You should be getting a generator in if you're not able to yeah. perform your contract. If you're saying hindered, I think then in that case, you've got to try and reduce the impact force majeure according to the clause. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think you've got a greater deal of transparency of saying, well, do you know what? We were hindered. We could have taken these other steps, but actually we were still hindered. And so we're still entitled to that relief. I mean, I suppose the interesting thing is, of course, that if we, you know, we're looking at it, I suppose, at the moment, very much from the supplier's point of view, but we ha we have to perhaps work on the basis that the customer may well be impacted by these, by, by these rolling blackouts as well. So it may well be that both parties are impacted or actually one party more so than the other. I mean, obviously, another thing that people can have a look at is changing shift patterns. Do they have everybody come in and start that little bit earlier or do they have some level of flexible working that can, the only place that I can envisage that that wouldn't necessarily work is if you You've got a factory somewhere running multiple production lines. That that loss of that four or five hour window could well be significant, couldn't it? Yeah, and it, I mean it. It could be significant, uh, as you say. You could have workforce changes within a manufacturing um, situation. You could have capacity planning. Um, I'm sure capacity planning meetings will be underway now to work out how production lines can be run um, around blackouts and we don't yet have visibility of what sort of um, exceptions to the blackout rule there will be for certain um, critical services um, and manufacturing sites. 
Yeah, and I think one of the other elements that, that might be interesting to see how it plays out is historically, when we've looked at force majeure, we, we say, okay, we're looking at the effect of COVID on this contract or, or the effect of the lockdown on this contract. There's a greater scope now, I think, for the cumulative effect of Absolutely. perhaps partial lockdowns and supply chain issues mm -hmm. and rolling blackouts as a cumulative effect mm -hmm. on the contract. Do all those three things cumulatively hinder the supplier's performance such that they might be intent, entitled to some form of relief. And that, that's a really interesting point because, John and I, you've, you and I have had some matters where that's what we've been arguing, that it's actually the cumulative effect. So it's, you know, the customer will turn around and say, but why haven't you raised this with us before? And it's like, well, we could stomach that element. But when you then add, as you say, COVID plus supply chain, plus, 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 that's where it starts to get really, really quite difficult for us. And I think that that's something that historically, when looking at force majeure, we've never done no. you know we've never thought that there could be so much happening no. at once and the other issue of course is the force majeure clause itself will often refer to unforeseen yeah. um, events and right now all this is within our contemplation and so that is another angle to all of this and to what extent should uh, customers and suppliers who let's face it either or both parties mm -hmm. could be adversely impacted here um, to you know a greater extent than the other potentially to what extent should they be having these conversations up front or is it best to essentially kick that difficult conversation conversation down the track till we know exactly what predicament we find ourselves in and I think that that's so, so important because we, we kind of always talk about force majeure being this kind of allocation of risk. But actually, now that the government has put in the media, rolling blackouts might well occur. It is no longer unforeseen. So if you're signing a contract today, it's going to be really difficult for you to run the argument that we had no idea that there might be the prospect of rolling blackouts. And I think with that in mind, it's whether you stay silent because it's better not to have it expressly called out in the contract, mm -hmm. or but you run the risk if you do stay silent that actually it's not unforeseen anymore. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely something we, we were talking before about the fact that historically a force majeure provision, when you were negotiating a contract, you would perhaps speak to your client about whether is it a three week period, a three month period or a six month period, possibly even a nine month period. That, that was all you spoke about was the time period that the event had to be going on for to enable a party to terminate. There wasn't really any other discussion. And now all of a sudden, force majeure is becoming a real critical path to agreeing a contract. And, and you know, I don't know about you, Fiona, from the work that you're doing, but I'm finding force majeure negotiations really quite difficult at the moment, especially when looking after suppliers and that customers are very keen to not include all of those things that as a supplier you would want, you know, so you want to include a pandemic and epidemic, you want to include supply chain issues, you want to include all of those things as being events which are identified as force majeure. And funnily enough, customers aren't so keen. <laughs> no, and that's the case. I mean, I think uh, force majeure discussions are, um, you know, front and foremost, along with discussions around liability, um, insurance provisions and potentially business continuity um, type discussions. Um, and they're all in the mix yep. together. And uh, as you say, um, there is quite a hard line being taken by a lot of customers in pushing the risk onto their supply chain. Mm. Um, John, where do you see that going? Uh, interestingly enough, I think we've always looked at kind of force majeure being one of those clauses that's impacted by bargaining power. But actually what we're seeing is when a dispute arises 
actually you're also seeing bargaining power come into play there. Yeah. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the supplier that's always got the control because actually quite often the supplier needs whatever this thing is that isn't being delivered. And actually we're, we're finding that even if the supplier might be the more dominant market player, if they need what the customer is providing, actually quite often it's the customer that has a degree of commercial negotiating yeah. power, even when a dispute arises. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you know, we are seeing these things happening now. And, and we're also seeing, again, going back to something that we've spoken about before, the fact that force majeure provisions are just the same force majeure provisions that we've seen in contracts for the past 30, however many years. Um, and practically, they don't necessarily work as well as they should do. So it's not very clear what happens if a notice, if somebody issues a notice and the other party just says no, which we are seeing, you know, there's nothing in there which says the other party might turn around and say, well, yes, we agreed that there, this was a force majeure event, but as far as we're concerned, it has now finished. There's nothing in the contracts which talk about that side of things. And, and you know, I think it'll be interesting to see, again, especially from a litigation point of view, how that develops over the next six to 12 months or so. Um, so we've got blackouts, which are potentially happening. <laughs> But then we've also got strikes and strikes are a really interesting one because in a whole load of contracts that I've dealt with, you can quite often see from the supplier's point of view that industrial action, which relates to the supplier, is expressly excluded, isn't it? Yeah, and that's common to see in what used to be, you know, the boilerplate force majeure clause yeah. that no one ever used to look at or talk about, remember that? Um, but, but, but that was the standard wording. And so now we are in the scenario where strikes are, are in a very real way impacting um, the ability of a lot of suppliers to deliver. And so what, what now in that situation, I mean, there are clearly strikes happening and where it's a third party strike rather than the supplier's own Mm -hmm. um, workforce striking which are impacting the supplier's ability to deliver mm -hmm. and perform its contractual obligations and in that scenario um, it would be feasible to run a force majeure relief argument again but it, depending on what the, the contract itself says mm -hmm. but based on the that standard wording where it's yeah around striking of its own workforce, mm. that argument would be feasible. Mm. Yeah, and it throws up some of the same issues actually as the rolling blackouts because the, the most common strikes we're seeing now are not long-term sequential strikes. We're seeing kind of incremental strikes over one or two days and then the workforce returns. And so you have that same discussion around whether the clause says prevented, which is unlikely to offer a relief for in incremental strikes or merely hindered, where actually that would seem to open the door much easier. Mm. And okay, elephant in the room, you know, I look after rail. Rail strikes are the ones that are, are, are impacting us all probably more so than most at, at the moment. And obviously the interesting thing there is that it's not actually the supplier that's directly impacted by this. It is the customer. It is the train operating companies because it's their staff who are unable to do the delivering. So that's the one where it does potentially flip it on its head slightly because it's the suppliers who might not be able to do something mm -hmm. because the customer isn't able to provide the trains or, or, or for example, if it's if it's depot workers on strike they aren't allowed you know they aren't able to provide people access to depots so i think the strike one is going to be quite an interesting one i think i know the government are looking at how they can handle strikes but we're obviously hearing murmurings that that other unionized workforces are going to go on strike yeah um and she said at the start for you entering into a winter of discontent it sounds like something something quite shakespearean <laughs> yeah, doesn't it, does. it? <laughs> yeah i think it feeds into the cumulative 
effect yeah. argument again um, because there are other strikes mooted in different um, uh, you know public sector um, spaces and uh, what impact will that have cumulatively mm. Yeah, I think that that's right. And it kind of goes back to what alternative steps could be taken. Could you use road logistics instead of mm. freight on the rails? You know, for example, <gasps> I, I'm certainly not advocating that to, to the head of rail, but it offers an opportunity for some contracts. So again, it goes back to that prevention versus hindered yeah. argument. Yeah, absolutely. So John, as our resident proper lawyer, <laughs> as in one who actually practices the law, um, Frustration. How does frustration play into all of this? Do you want to just do a little recap on that and how that could play out where force majeure doesn't work? Yeah, of course. I mean, frustration is the test if actually performance of the contract becomes genuinely impossible. And the word impossible is so important to frustration mm -hmm. because it genuinely has to be the touchstone. And there's a slight sense of irony that the last time litigators got animated about frustration mm -hmm. was when the last king was coronated. So actually having <laughs> the new king being coronated has a bit of poetic license to it. But I think that gives you an indication of how mm -hmm. readily it can be relied upon. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly think with rolling blackouts and strikes, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly yeah. hard to rely on frustration unless chronologically you have to deliver something in a very very prescribed period of time mm -hmm. and the, the strikes the blackouts make it genuinely impossible mm -hmm. it can't be rescheduled it can't be delivered late for example incredibly high threshold so i think it's probably one of those that should be considered on a case-by-case -case basis but i'm not expecting a raft of frustration case law to, to emanate out of this winter Absolutely. So I think it's fair to say that when people are having these discussions um, with customers or suppliers, when these things are arising, you know, maybe don't necessarily band about frustration as, as the likelihood is it's going to be very rare that can actually be put into practice. So force majeure is our friend to a certain extent in this case. Yeah, I think that's right. People quite often reel out frustration um, as something that potentially will be their get out of jail free card. Um, and John's right, I regularly find myself reminding um, people that um, the impossibility threshold is really high. And for example, you know, if delivery by rail isn't possible, other options are available. Yeah. And indeed, your force majeure clause may require um, the original party to pay for mm -hmm. your use of that third party option, actually, depending on how it's drafted. Yeah. So it is worth digging the contract out of the proverbial drawer um, and file and having a look at the, the wording on that as well. I mean, I think that's true for everybody at the moment, isn't it? Anybody that's got an existing contract that does have a concern that what's happening at the moment could impact their contract. It is worth digging it out. It's at the back of the contract somewhere, normally after termination. Have a look at the force majeure clause and see what it says. Um, some are drafted really well, some are drafted not so well. I mean, you see some where they don't even have a definition of force majeure, which is probably quite helpful actually, at the moment. <laughs> I think that's right. And I think what's interesting, actually, is that actually if you're really likely to be impacted over the winter, actually the likelihood that you've just signed the contract over the last couple of weeks might be less than actually for the slightly older contracts where actually this yeah. reasonable foreseeability yeah. of the rolling blackouts might yeah, it is worth just reminding ourselves that force majeure isn't something that exists. Um, it, it's a, it has to be included in the contract. It's not a, a, a doctrine that automatically is imported into our contracts. So it's just 
uh, worth remembering that it has to actually be there. It doesn't have to be called force majeure necessarily, yeah. as long as the wording achieves the same it's objective. Something. But that is just, uh, it's not magic. Yeah, I saw a suggestion the other day that we should all be signing our contracts subject to German law because uh, they have force majeure included by virtue of the civil code. Yeah. So, And I think the Italians do the same. So, yeah. you know, elsewhere it's it's there, but for us it's, it's not a, a natural thing that, you know, just gets imported into contracts. So we've spoken about existing contracts. And so then we, for people who are doing new contracts, it is that recognition of that risk, isn't it? It's that that assessment of what the risk could be really, as to whether you raise it and argue about the point now or whether you just leave it and ignore it and hope it doesn't happen. So the situations that we think about where it is going to be an issue are those which are time critical, aren't they? It's those which are which rely on, say, multiple production lines in a factory. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. But it's also worth having one eye on not just the contract, but on the practical aspects of look, how do I mitigate against mm -hmm. this risk? What contingency business continuity plans do I have to have in place? What does my business continuity insurance cover, for example? And I think when you're kind of negotiating the contract, as much as uh, it's about trying to get the best allocation of risk for your party, it's also trying to get what you think the other side will agree to. Mm -hmm. You're probably not going to get them to exclude rolling blackouts in the current climate. But for example, if you've got them to remove reasonably foreseeable, you might be able to slide rolling blackouts into the existing wording through the back door. Yeah. But also your performance metrics, you know, try and build in some um, wriggle room in terms of timing for performance, unless it is absolutely time critical or just-in-time delivery etc mm. into a production line when that's clearly going to be more tricky um, but it's there's other ways that may sit outside of the force majeure clause itself that buy you some flexibility I think also contemplating that way of collaborative working, which we saw quite a lot of during COVID, but it's still not flowing into the force majeure drafting at the moment. So if we take the generators, for an example, for, for somebody in the supply chain to go out and procure a generator, which let's face it, at the time where we've got rolling blackouts, the cost of hiring a generator is inevitably going to increase somewhat. Whereas you might actually be working for a customer that just has their own generators anyway. So having that discussion is, is probably something that's that's really worthwhile at this stage. Is there any collaborative ways that you can work together? It may well be that the customer's got greater buying power as well. Um, so so I think, and that, and that does go back to everything really, the COVID, what's happening in Ukraine, supply chain issues. If you're negotiating a new contract at the moment to have a think about ways in which you can collaborate a little bit more, do a bit of the risk sharing, um, and that's not necessarily meaning that a customer who feels that they shouldn't be taking on the risk is taking on more risk. It's just that they might actually be in a better position to mitigate than the supplier themselves. Yeah, and I think we saw that in particular with the war in Ukraine, because I think the general principle is force majeure doesn't cover the contract becoming more expensive. Mm. But where is the line drawn between there being such a steel shortage that you just can't comply with the contract versus you can buy the steel. There is some out there, but it's just prohibitively expensive. Yeah. And you might not put it in the force majeure clause, but there are mechanisms in terms of if the raw material goes to X, the parties yeah. will do Y. Yeah. And I appreciate that's a harder job to do at the drafting stage, but mm. it does perform that allocation of risk, particularly on the economic risk, yeah. that much more sophisticated. Yeah. 
I've certainly picked that up in with regards to indexation clauses at the moment. So we're we're kind of dealing with it by way of indexation clauses. So if if you know the index levels, whichever index you're using, goes up by more than a certain amount, then the risk there is a risk sharing. I think the other thing we're talking there about the price of steel, but another way that I've seen people deal with it is saying, well, okay, actually that's for that grade of steel, which was that which was determined and set out in the specification. But actually, if we go for a lower grade of steel, which still meets all the spec requirements mm -hmm. and is that bit cheaper, having that ability to collaborate and, and having the customer, rather than the customer just saying, no, that is the grade of steel without any real reasoning behind it to actually provide that derogation, which enables the contract to continue. So I think all of these are things that people should be thinking about. And then from a supplier's point of view, it's whether you raise them now as part of your discussion or whether you, you leave it until the point where you may need to do it. Yeah, I mean, difficult for a potential supplier um, in response to RFQs, etc. Yeah, um, are going to raise these sorts of points. Um, it remains to be seen, and you know, interested to hear what you're seeing on that in in the market because I suspect it varies, and uh, I suspect it varies. But interested to hear how that develops. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the big thing we're seeing, I think, on supply chain issues is actually it, it becomes a little bit of a zombie contract. It, it keeps going. The parties are at loggerheads, mm -hmm. but actually the contract isn't at an end. So no one's issuing court proceedings. The correspondence is becoming increasingly vitriolic. But again, it's not fallen over completely. It's kind of still going. And I think that there's going to be a number of contracts where someone's going to have to grasp the nettle at some point and say, well, one or other party has lost significant sums of money on this mm -hmm. and eventually they're going to have to litigate settle whatever it may be i think at the moment we're really seeing that kind of zombie contract continue on uh, there's disputes mid-life but there isn't actually that final step of resolving mm. it's interesting you say that because slightly uniquely to the set of circumstances we have just now everyone is impacted equally although some mm to use a, you know, a metaphor, some people are in bigger ships than smaller boats in terms of how they weather the particular storm. Um, everyone's impacted by these same issues, whereas historically force majeure often meant a one-off event that impacted a particular party. And that, of course, limits the options of both parties in terms of going out and finding an alternative supplier, etc. Mm -hmm. Hence, you're a zombie contract because, play, you know, there's not necessarily a good alternative. No, albeit that, that, that kind of dovetails into Michelle's point, which is actually perhaps the best option is everyone settling and being equally miserable. And actually, that's <laughs> a, a fair outcome to <laughs> Oh come on! We we need to find a we need to find a happy way. We need to find a, a positive way to end this discussion. Um, I mean, I, I actually think that that is it, isn't it? Everybody is in the same boat, so you would hope that that would mean that everybody's a little bit more willing to look at ways that they can work together. Whether that's a bit more collaboration, whether it's you know enabling um, uh, people to do a level of price increasing, because that's obviously a real squeeze that that people in manufacturing in particular have been feeling. Um, what would be your key takeaway, Fiona, for people to think about when they're looking either at existing contracts or new contracts? I think be broad-minded in um, the way you look at your contract and don't only look at the force majeure provisions. Think broadly about what other provisions might mm -hmm. help you, as well as the drafting of the force majeure clause, 
look at your pricing mechanism, look at your business continuity, look at your insurance and be pragmatic. I think it's an extension of what Fiona said. I think engage and engage early. As soon as the announcements around the rolling blackouts come, I think you need to be engaging with your supply chain to try and work out what the consequences of that will be and what steps can be taken to reduce those consequences really early on. Absolutely. Let's let's you know we've we've got this. We've we've been through COVID. We've done this. It's just a case of doing it all over again. And you never know. It might all work out beautifully this time. I'm sure we'll be back soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What will be the next thing? What will be the next thing? Well, I think on that note, it's probably worth us drawing this to a close. So thanks, guys. It's been a really good discussion again. Thank thanks you. so much. Thank you.